electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, building back better the roads, the bridges, the health care, oh, and the faith in our country and its lawmakers. National Economic Council Director Brian Deese. There's a lot of distrust and mistrust around how politics works. Uh, around the political process. And one of the things that we need to do across the board is restore faith in our institutions. And the legendary journalist Carl Bernstein. What's changed and what hasn't since the newspaper days of the 60s? Even with all the technological changes that have come about in the news business, the basics are still the same. To really be a good reporter, you're after the best obtainable version of the truth. Those big interviews, plus the Supreme Court's ruling on vaccine mandates, and it's been a long week. It's Friday. It's it's a morning show. Smile. Everybody's happy. I understand. No preaching. No preaching today. It is indeed Friday, January 14th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good Friday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The Supreme Court handing down a major decision on vaccine mandates, blocking the Biden administration from enforcing what was a sweeping vaccine or test requirement for large private companies. In the written opinion, the court said, quote, requiring the vaccination of 84 million Americans selected simply because they work for employers with more than a thousand employees exceeded the authority that Congress has given OSHA. Now, the court did allow that vaccine mandate to stand for medical facilities that take Medicare or Medicaid payments. The court's ruling will not prevent U.S. companies from requiring vaccinations for their workers if they want. And President Biden urged them yesterday to do so. Interestingly, the BRT, the Business Roundtable, and a couple of other uh, groups uh, came out quite publicly and said that they uh, unabated, that they will continue uh, to pursue vaccine mandates at their companies. So um, while this will uh, maybe change the outlook for certain companies in terms of how they approach this, uh, some of the biggest companies in the country continue uh, to want at least to do this on their own. And you remember at one point we talked about how so many of those companies had wanted that, on, had wanted the administration effectively to step in to give them air cover so that they could do it. So this is sort of an interesting new development in all of that. There were other trade organizations that were calling this a victory yesterday, including the National Retail Federation, which did not um, want to be forced to look for these because they've had such problems finding uh, workers. Uh, I think some uh, uh, transportation companies kind of feeling the same way. Um, It depends on where you are, how difficult it is uh, to find workers. And I guess if those workers are front-facing to the public, too, it may make a difference. And, and, yeah, there were more than a few that, that were up to us. And some that, were, that, that uh, welcomed the ruling but said they plan to continue with their own mandates. It's, it's almost as if they want the, the flexibility uh, to do it. There's a lot of conjecture yesterday. There's three, there's three uh, divisions of government, not four. Agencies uh, all along, uh, this administration knew that this was a long shot and a workaround. And 
I think the Supreme Court actually mentioned some of, of Ron Klain's comments about how we've got this clever way of, for a workaround to get this through. And they were almost uh, cynical about, about the notion that, that uh, they were trying to game it that way. And I, I don't know whether it was punitive, but they certainly, um, you know, they, they certainly mentioned that. So, uh, I, you know, we're going to have Brian Deese on. And Brian is in charge of the NEC and, and all things economic. And I don't think in his wildest dreams at Goldman Sachs, he ever thought he would have to be a sort of Secretary of Health and Human Services. So his job is to try and get the economy going. And there, there's no doubt uh, that when, you know, you have all the issues surrounding mandates and people not wanting to work and quitting and leaving and, and you know, not, not being able to have a, the labor force that you'd have in normal times, I'm not saying he's, he's like, um, makes his job a little easier, but I think it does make uh, his job a little easier because, you know, trying to say, well, a year from now, uh, our economy will doing, be doing much better because of, of mandate. Right now, we got supply chains, we got inflation. We saw that yesterday. So I'm going to ask him that when he's on and just say, in the back of your mind, are you okay that, that you know, maybe we won't have quite as many? I mean, with Omicron, we, maybe we need to revisit the whole idea because vaccines do not, you know, you can be quadruple boosted whoa, whoa, whoa. and you can still get know, I, I Joe, do think vaccines make it so you get less sick. I think they make it so you get less sick. No, I mean, of course, of course, of if you, course. The hospitalizations are almost all, it's not the hospitalizations with Omicron are almost all people who aren't vaccinated. Everybody, anybody who's dying from this at all are unvaccinated. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Uh, there's no doubt. The truth there's is, no, and, and, most Omicron, have and most have if, comorbidity. If, and most have comorbidity. But the point yeah. is, if you I don't want Andrew, please. I, I know how you feel. I know how you feel. But it's it's Friday. It's the it's a morning show. Smile. If you've been boosted and you get Omicron, that. you're fine. If you haven't been vaccinated, really, thank you. Or I know boosted, that, Andrew. I know that. No preaching. No preaching today. No whiny preaching. I got it. I understand that. I Let's heard the preaching. You just preached for the last three minutes about how nobody should get. No, I did not. I didn't say that at all. I just said that Omicron. Let me remember once when you told me, do the news, do the news. I'm going to do the news. Breaking overnight, top ranked tennis player Novak Djokovic uh, has lost his fight uh, to stay in Australia for a major tournament overnight. Australia's immigration minister revoked his visa, saying it was in the public interest to do so. It's unclear whether Australia will move to deport Djokovic because the decision can still be challenged by his legal team. Now, Djokovic arrived in Melbourne last week, promptly had his visa canceled for entering without a valid exemption for the country's vaccination requirement. On Monday, a judge ruled that he should be allowed to stay back. This one's pretty interesting because um, there were mistakes made on both sides of that, but Djokovic didn't do himself any favors by being picked up with pictures, publicly posing with kids, with other people, at least a day or two after he had been right. supposedly tested positive for COVID. So I don't know if you guys caught the Australian. Are you circling around on this, Bex? Because when we talked about this last earlier in the week, I thought you were uh, you uh -oh. were on the Djokovic side. Oh, no, side I just don't think he should get. No. Are you kidding? I said I said, no, there should be no special rules for anybody because of who they are. That was my stance earlier. Oh, I thought you, OK, I thought case. you were on the, the other end of it. No, no, no. They, the, my problem with this was rules for thee, but not for me. I mean, everybody, if they're going to have rules for people, they should apply to everybody evenly. And that should always be the case. Um, even if you look at the fine details on this, you were supposed to apply for that exemption by December 10th. He didn't apply and didn't get didn't get COVID till December 16th. So no matter how you look at this, there were some rules broken along the way. 
the Australian government messed it up. Clearly, one of their judges was angry that he, they had taken his phone away and not given him access to his legal team. But he 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 broke the rules and has flouted it and was exposing people to COVID, knowing he had it along the way to boot. So it's hard Did to defend you guys in any way, see, shape, or form. Did you see the video? And this is now very meta for us of the two anchors in Australia. Yeah, that's what I just mentioned. The, yeah, the two anchors in Australia with the hot mic, I think, nailed it. No matter how you look at this, he's a jerk. They had some saucier language for it, but no matter how you look at it, he's kind of a jerk. And, you know, it's love to see him play tennis, but he went around this the wrong way. I'm just hoping nobody's got us on the hot mic during, during the commercial break, so. <laughs> yes, there but for the grace of God, right? Or, or John, our audio guy. Next on Squawk Pod, inflation, insider trading, and laying the groundwork for America's next chapter. Plus, how we'll pay for that. Coming to us from the White House, National Economic Council Director Brian Deese. If we focus on measures like childcare, healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs, lowering those costs and offsetting those across time, from an economic perspective, that actually is a way to not add to inflationary pressures, but actually expand our economy's productive capacity. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Stand by, Joe. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And the Department of Transportation out this morning with a funding announcement for the new infrastructure law. The Bridge Formula Program will invest more than $27 billion in rehabilitating the nation's bridges. Join us now to discuss this uh, and more. White House National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese. Brian, it's, it's great to have you on uh, this morning. We talk about infrastructure. We can talk about that. That's one of the, uh, the bright spots I know, given the last couple of weeks uh, for the administration. And, and I was actually thinking, uh, Brian, you, you know, thank God you can just focus on on economics and what you've learned uh, in, with your years, Goldman Sachs and everything else, because politics is, is, uh, is so difficult for, for many other areas. If you found yourself running back to uh, to, to economic figures and, and numbers and, and, you know, things like that rather than the rest of the world you're living in right now? Or do you have to be involved in all of it? Well, to get things done, you sort of have to be involved in everything. But it's good to be here and to use a couple of numbers to the point you were making this morning. The announcement this morning about bridge funding is the largest investment in bridges ever in our nation's history. And what's important about this is it's going to repair 
and upgrade 15,000 of the smaller bridges across the country. If you think about the economic interconnections in the country, the big bridges are, of course, important, and this bill has transformational investments here. What we're announcing today is those smaller interconnects that mean that goods can get to different parts of the country. We're rolling that out today. Uh, it's, it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting, and obviously those investments will happen over the course of a couple of years. But by getting that going as quickly as we can here, we're going to start to make some progress on being able to move goods more cheaply and easily across the country. It seems like the, the administration, given the, uh, the, the, the job of, uh, of putting the entire infrastructure plan to work, could have its work cut out for it already. Is there still a, an impetus, um, Brian, to go forward you know, with what we've heard from Senator Manchin and, and what we've seen with inflation? Do you still think Build Back Better should be a priority uh, at this point as NEC director? Absolutely. If we think about where we are economically, our focus is on the things that we can do to try to address the costs that American families are facing and also to expand the productive capacity of the economy, to operate on the supply side, to get more people working, to move goods and services uh, more quickly through the economy. We need to be able to build on what will be a historic year for economic growth in 2021, likely the strongest economic growth since 19, the mid-1980s, and build back better. Um, it's not going to add to inflationary pressure. It won't add to aggregate demand. Uh, what it will do is it'll go at some of those costs and those costs that families are facing that are most likely to keep them from working. So you think about childcare right now. We look at labor supply. It's on the minds of a lot of uh, employers in, in this country. Uh, and in addition to immigration and, and the retirement uh, issue, Women uh, are, are persistently not getting back into the workforce uh, as quickly as uh, we need them to. And a big pain point for that is the cost of child care, the availability of child care, the quality of child care. We could take this common sense step, reduce the cost of child care, just give families the confidence that they don't have to pay more than 7% of their income. That's a common sense thing to do. It'll be pro-work, get more people into the workforce, and it won't add to aggregate demand because it'll be paid for over time. Well, we can talk about uh, where inflation arises and what's inflationary and, uh, and what isn't. And some people argue that maybe it was the Federal Reserve. And, you know, we're, we're hearing from Jay Powell and Lael Brainerd this week. But we are seeing uh, numbers that, that are, you know, at some have, we haven't seen in 10, 20 years uh, for inflation. We saw another one this week. One of your former colleagues at, at Goldman, um, uh, Curry, uh, Jeff Curry talking about a, a new bull market in commodities that, that, that's going to be years long. And I guess when I was asking about the political side of things, you've got a, a, a senator in Joe Manchin who's been talking about inflation uh, the, the entire time as a reason for questioning a, when it was a $4 trillion or a $5 trillion bill. And you know where he stands, and he's been very, very clear uh, where he stands. Don't you think he can say, and, and don't you think the people of West Virginia would say, what he has been warning about has been validated. Why keep trying to, to just ram this through uh, when he obviously uh, is probably not going to go for it and looks like he's been vindicated and validated? It, it just seems like maybe the president isn't always getting the right, uh, the best advice from those around him. And I think Joe Manchin actually said that, that it was the president's staff uh, that, that, uh, that he had a, a problem with at one point. Do you advise the president on these things, uh, Brian? I do, um, and uh, I haven't ever worked for Goldman, but I appreciate the uh, uh, the context. I uh, what I would look. What I would say to that is, 
Uh, Senator Manchin's a close partner. Uh, we work closely with him, and of course, uh, I'm advising the president on this set of issues. And what we're advising him and what the president thinks is that uh, the price increases right now are absolutely an issue. Absolutely an issue. They're affecting uh, families where they are, but they're also affecting sentiment uh, and the outlook, which is why our focus is on what we can do concretely to bring down those costs in the context of the Federal Reserve is moving and operating independently. The president is focused on getting quality candidates uh, in, uh, in chair there. But the focus here is on how can we actually practically address the costs that families are facing while at the same time recognizing that we don't want to add to aggregate demand right now. We want to fully offset the cost of investments that we're making. And that's actually a plausible path that we have here if we focus on measures like childcare, healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs, lowering those costs and offsetting those across time. From an economic perspective, that actually is a way to not add to inflationary pressures, but actually expand our economy's productive capacity. I mean, what you and many others have talked about for years is we need to be more pro-growth, we need to get growth going, and we need to expand our economy's capacity to make goods, uh, deliver services. The investments in the Build Back Better plan, if they're fully offset, will do exactly that. Hey, Brian, uh, you mentioned some of the things that you think are so important from the Build Back Better bill, including childcare, and I, I think there's probably some broad support for something like that. We had the president of the American Chamber of Commerce on earlier this week, and she was talking about how businesses would like to see that too. If you could get broad support, bipartisan support for issues like that, is there a chance that those things would be spun off and kind of passed singularly um, through the Senate? Because you could probably get 60 votes for something like that. Well, the, the, the challenge we have uh, practically, and this has been a challenge that has been acknowledged uh, from the get-go, is that we are really focused, and the president has been adamantly focused, that we need to pay for the things that we're doing. And we need to pay for things by taking reasonable steps to undo some of the most damaging parts of the 2017 tax law and to make sure that we have a, a fair, equitable corporate tax system in particular that is encouraging investment in the United States. And unfortunately, there is no uh, support for actually working to offset fully the cost of these investments across time. So our, our focus is on how can we practically do this in a way that actually meets the economic moment we, uh, that we have right now, that actually fully pays for these investments rather than doing them in an unpaid for way. We have a pathway uh, to do that in the Senate right now. And to your point, there are a lot of areas where there is agreement across the caucus. And part of the process right now is to sit down and figure out how we can get to that outcome. Uh, these processes are always complicated. Joe, to your point at the beginning, the, the process itself is messy and it can be hard uh, and, and painful at times. But we still think that there's a real uh, credible path here and a lot of good to come from the economy if we can get this done. Brian, I have readers who are, who are sending me emails saying uh, the United States government uh, brought in more revenue this year uh, in terms of tax revenue, corporate tax revenue, uh, than it has uh, since 2007, that would be sort of reached that same high, um, and says, look, look at the tax rates. Isn't this a function of that? I'm not sure I agree with that, but I wanted you to speak directly to it. Well, I'm glad you raised that point. I, I think it's uh, not as recognized, but in fact, in 2021, the deficit fell. Notwithstanding the emergency measures that we put in place, the deficit fell. The reason for that was that we saw revenues grow, but the reason was because of strong economic growth. You know, we're tracking to see 2021 growth come in at between 5 and 6%. As I mentioned before, we haven't seen those levels since the mid-1980s. And that robust growth 
the fast uh, uh, rebound of the U.S. labor market has helped to contribute to a really strong uh, uh, economy going forward. But if we look at the share of uh, GDP coming from corporate revenues, it's still near historic lows. And there are issues with our tax code that we really need to deal with. Uh, we need to deal with the fact that we have this global race to the bottom where companies are spending money on tax avoidance to try to move their profits to lowest cost jurisdictions rather than on productive investments in the future. Those are the kind of things that we can solve. We've worked internationally to put together a global coalition to solve those things. And so that's really the focus of this legislation is putting our corporate tax system on a more sustainable path going forward where we will we'll generate more revenue as a share of GDP, but do so in a way where we're growing the economy so that we've got more revenue overall. Uh, hey, Brian, while I have you, um, it's a little bit of a pivot, but we've been talking about it all week. So I'm curious what your take is as somebody who's part of the administration. Uh, we've been talking about uh, whether Congress should be allowed to trade stocks um, individually. And Nancy Pelosi has said that uh, they should. Uh, we've talked uh, to Gary Gensler about this now. We talked to Jay Clayton, the former SEC chair, about this now. What do you think? I believe, and you can tell me, that I think you, in, in, in your job, are restricted from buying and selling individual stocks. Well, that's where I was going to go. If you, the, I, I can tell you the, the restrictions on the executive branch are um, quite significant. There's no, uh, no engagement on, uh, on individual stock transactions, and in fact, uh, more so um, uh, beyond uh, holding broad uh, market indices. And I, I think that that's certainly sensible. It's a rule that uh, we all operate by and live by in the executive branch and doesn't uh, put any real practical burden uh, on our ability to uh, do our jobs. I think there's a more fundamental principle, which uh, going back to Joe, the first point you made, there's a lot of distrust and mistrust around how politics works uh, around the political process. And one of the things that we need to do across the board is restore faith in our institutions, uh, whether that be Congress and the legislative branch, whether that be the Fed and otherwise. And so anything we can do to try to restore that faith, I think makes a lot of sense. You know, Brian, I, one of the things I was alluding to earlier, just, you know, it was a rough week and everything. And, and, you know, watching the voting rights speech that I saw from the president down in Atlanta in, in you know, and thinking back on January 20th and, and the inauguration. And I mean, both sides have a lot of answering to do. In your um, domain, if you look at what Senator Manchin said about the way that, that the one and three quarter trillion Build Back Better was sold, and you look at what Wharton said, uh, you look at the, what the Wall Street Journal op-ed pieces, you know full well that it was one year uh, of spending and, and 10 years of taxes. And it was presented that way because you could get the CBO to score it that way. But you were saying earlier how it's all paid for. As NEC director, you had to know at that point that those were, were fake numbers and, and, and it wasn't paid for. And, and I'm just, could you not have steered that back to where, uh, you know, there wasn't all the backlash just because we knew the numbers weren't real? Wasn't that your, your job to do that? Well, I appreciate the chance to set the record straight on that. If you look at the core components of the bill that passed the House, uh, which the Congressional Budget Office has scored, the Joint Committee on Taxation has scored, that bill is comprised of long-term investments, long-term investment in childcare, in preschool, in uh, clean energy incentives, long-term 10-year incentives in clean energy, in healthcare. Those numbers are out there for everybody to see and 10 years of revenue as well. Uh, certainly, the president has made very clear, and frankly, it's been the president 
who has driven this argument from the beginning to say it's important that we take the steps to pay for what we're doing. And if you look at even uh, some of the independent analyses that you mentioned, like Penn Wharton, their ana analysis is, in fact, this bill would increase, in, I mean, decrease inflationary pressures across time. But our job is to put together legislative packages that would do good for the American people, help to continue to sustain this strong economic recovery. And uh, this president is very focused on doing so in a way that will be fully paid for across time. All those numbers are out there. I, I, the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation have looked at this closely. And we're gonna work from that to build a package that can pass the Senate, can pass the House, and will help the economy going forward. All right. It, thanks, uh, Brian. Brian, the SNEC director. BlackRock, I'm sorry, I, I know I, I misspoke and said Goldman. Both top tier, both great. <laughs> I know BlackRock's got a lot more money under management than, than Goldman. So anyway, good to have you on today, Brian. Coming up next on Squawk Pod, one of the journalists who investigated Watergate and became a brand name, Carl Bernstein. War stories from the newsroom. I got to see everything that was happening in this country, probably the civil rights revolution, going to the White House under Jack Kennedy, going to his press conferences, covering the march on Washington. The media industry and about 60 years of change, right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 50 years ago, later this year, so 1972, a midnight break-in at the offices of the Democratic National Committee in Washington's Watergate complex kicked off a political scandal and brought down a United States president. The Washington Post was the most aggressive news organization to investigate the Watergate story. Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, both little known outside their Washington newsroom at the time, were the dogged team investigating first the break-in, then the cover-up, and then the exposure of a conspiracy inside the Nixon White House to obstruct a federal investigation. The White House generally declined to comment. When it did, it was a press conference of carefully phrased denials coupled with denunciations of the Washington Post. I don't respect the type of journalism, the shabby journalism that is being practiced by the Washington Post. And I use the term shoddy journalism, shabby journalism, and I've used the term character assassination, and that is exactly what I believe and what I feel is taking place here. President Nixon resigned. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. 
after two years of scandal, the release of secret White House recordings exposing his complicity, and the growing threat of impeachment. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. He was, and remains, the first president to step down while in office. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. We are now outside on the south lawn of the White House, where in a few moments the president and his family will come out and board a helicopter. And the final wave, a wave we've seen hundreds of times on the campaign trail, arms up, fingers stretched in a V sign. The Watergate investigation won Woodward and Bernstein a Pulitzer Prize, and the two became brand names in 20th century journalism. In our Washington News Center this morning is Tom Brokaw. And, and they Carl's remained experts on the psychology of the presidency. And newspaper man Carl Bernstein. Who emerged and the scandal that defined an era. And yet he left the impression of the American people that he still does not believe that he was guilty of an impeachable offense. I wasn't surprised at it because all along through Watergate, Mr. Nixon has refused to be morally condemned in any sense. Uh, his son-in-law, David Eisenhower, in the final days uh, of the administration, told General Haig, the White House Chief of Staff, he'll go if he sees it as a political defeat. He will not allow himself to be condemned morally. Carl Bernstein's new memoir, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, covers not the Watergate story he's famous for, but his first job as a newspaper copyboy at a local evening paper in Washington. Becky Quick spoke to Bernstein about his history in the business and the media industry today, more than 60 years after he first walked into a newsroom. Carl, thanks for being here today. When you're looking back and kind of reflecting on all of this, how do you, how do you feel about that, given where the, the news business has come to this point? Was this almost like going back and, and reporting on a foreign land at this point? No. Uh, look, I was 16 years old. I went to work uh, at the Washington Star in my native city of Washington, D.C., and at age 16, I probably got the best seat in the country. And for the next five years at this great newspaper, being uh, mentored by the greatest newspaper people of their day, I got to see everything that was happening in this country, probably, probably the civil rights revolution, going to the White House under Jack Kennedy, going to his press conferences, covering the march on Washington uh, at the age of 18. It was an extraordinary journey, uh, and pretty much everything that I learned in this business, all the things that we did in Watergate, there's a straight line from my apprenticeship at the Washington Star to the Watergate coverage across town at the Washington Post. And really what I learned in those days, even with all the technological changes that have come about in the news business, the basics are still the same. To really be a good reporter, you're after the best obtainable version of the truth, which is a phrase Woodward and I used in Watergate a lot, but the phrase goes back to the Washington Star. We called it the complexity of the truth. And so you can have all the technology, but the objective is to get out of the office, to go knock on doors, like you see in all the president's men, to get to one source after another, to make sure that you're right by having multiple sources, by going back to your original sources, time after time, because the real objective is to get at this complexity of the truth, especially the context of it. 
The lament these days is that there's not enough time for reporters to do some of these things because there's been so many cutbacks in newsrooms and in budgets. Do you think that's true or not? I think it's nonsense. <laughs> All it takes is one or two or three reporters to do what I was just talking about. It's not about cutbacks in newsrooms. If you have a few reporters, look, we have a big problem in that news organizations very often are more interested in money and uh, then they are in the best obtainable version of the truth. However, you get a few good reporters, if they don't just go Google things, if they don't just occasionally get on the telephone in combination with Google, and they get out of the office and they start going to their sources, not going to visit them in their offices perhaps, but going to see them at night in their homes or at dinner, when there's a real chance to get information when people are not under pressure, they'll get the stories. And incidentally, there is fabulous reporting going on all over the country today, but particularly in Washington, uh, at the White House, the reporting on the Trump presidency, I would say, uh, by the greatest number of news organizations, is really the best reporting out of the White House uh, that I've seen really in my, in my lifetime. So it can be done. It just takes a determination and a commitment by news organizations. And yes, it requires a financial commitment, but what it really requires is getting away from the laziness that permeates our business today. One of the big issues is that there is not the local news coverage that there used to be. Um, things are folding up all over the place, including my state in New Jersey. Um, there's not going to be any of the daily publications or seven day a week publications for many of the local newspapers. Um, there has been a push by some places where they would like to start opening more local um, bureaus, if you want to call it that, maybe uh, for, for online publications, maybe for newsletters. What, what, what do you see happening, at least on the local level? Well, I think it's been a terrible thing, the death of local news, because and it predates the, uh, uh, the Internet, because chains like uh, Gannett, Knight Ritter, others came in, bought up newspapers uh, all over the country in two city newspapers in uh, all, all over America. And um, they stripped them, these companies. They stripped them of their reporters, stripped the staffs down to damn near nothing. Then they would have a joint operating agreement with another newspaper in the town or city. They would close down one paper. And the result was, even before the internet, that these were advertising vehicles more than real reported newspapers or news organizations. And then came the internet. And look, local news in our communities and towns has been part of what holds the social fabric of, of this country together. And it's one of the reasons that we have the kind of polarization that we have this cold civil war, as I've called it, in this country that has now been ignited during the Trump presidency. It's no longer a cold civil war. But I think we need to go back to, to what this book, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, is, is about, which it's also about the joy of, uh, of newspapering, of covering the news, of reporting the news, of getting the truth, of learning about the country and the people that we cover. You know, I was so lucky I got to cover the Civil Rights Revolution, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the, uh, the March on, on Washington, um, the Kennedy administration, the early Johnson years. This is an extraordinary thing that a kid gets to do. And so what you see in the book is the joy as well 
of what happens when a reporter, a kid, gets to be with these mentors who are covering the most important things going on in the world and learns from these people. When I went to the Washington Star, the first thing I saw my first day at the paper, a head copy boy took me around and he pointed to three people, all of whom had won the Pulitzer. Two of them were women, Mary Lou Werner at the Washington Star, who had gotten the Pulitzer the previous uh, year for covering massive resistance to desegregation in Virginia. Miriam Ottenberg, who had won the Pulitzer for her coverage of crime. So I learned right away about what great reporters do. And I think that, that the lesson that we're looking for, you know, one, another thing I did, I became a dictationist after a year, meaning I wore a headset. I took the dictation from reporters calling in. And we had five editions a day of that newspaper. It was the greatest afternoon paper in the country. And the last edition was called the Stock Sports Final. And one of the things I would do as a dictationist, I would put on my headset and at four o'clock every afternoon, uh, I would get from the S&P, uh, I would be taking down the stock, uh, stock results of the S&P. Uh, and so, so we learned about everything, including business news. We learned about the world. And it was, you know, it was like watching the world go by from this amazing seat. One of the things I did, I'd been into paper about four weeks and uh, the head copy boy said, Hey, Bernstein, go out to Burning Tree Country Club. Uh, President Eisenhower is there. He's playing golf. He's, go out there. We've got a photographer. We want you to pick up the film from the photographer who's photographing Ike playing golf. I had an employee's card that became a kind of press card that I would wear around my neck from the Washington Star. I went out to Burning Tree. And the caddy, once he saw this sort of press card I was wearing, took me straight to the green, the putting green, where the president of the United States, about 10 feet from me, was sinking putts. And off to President Eisenhower's right was the photographer. And he motioned to me, the photographer opened up his camera, gave me uh, the film inside. And before I, I uh, went back to the office with it, I took out my notebook and I studied Eisenhower about 10, 12 feet from me. It was the first time I had ever seen a president of the United States, and I saw that he had brown spots on his hands. Uh, he was the oldest president, and he was about to be succeeded by the youngest uh, ever elected, Jack Kennedy. So these are the experiences that I describe in the book. When you talk about what you learned from being in the newsroom, in person with these people, getting out with people, it makes me realize that the youngsters today who are coming up are missing out on so much by all of this work from home. They don't have these mentors there to be able to learn from them in whatever business places they're going. I think that's true, that, that we have got a kind of institutional quickness, that we're looking for easy ways in this culture. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that, that the United States is having many of the difficulties that it's having, including its place in the world. The idea that we half do things, that we no longer go through the necessary steps to do things right. Look at our educational system, the failures of our educational system in this country, institutional failures, regulatory failures. Why, why do we find these things? Because one, the great meritocracy that existed in this country after World War II no longer exists in this country. What we have instead are institutions 
Yes, they're looking for profit. Yes, they're, they're trying to, to do some things, but they're not succeeding very often because of all these shortcuts, and particularly in news. We need to go back to the basis, basics, as we see in all the president's men, as we see in this book about the joy of a kid learning the craft, go back to those basics. That's the pod for today. Thanks for sticking with us this week. It's been a long one. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen to and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.